Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series for patients where we talk about HIV, and today we'll talk about ways that a person who has HIV can stay as healthy as possible. And we welcome today Dr. Claire Farrell, who's an assistant professor in our Division of Infectious Disease and is the medical director of the UNC Infectious Disease Clinic. Welcome, Dr. Farrell. Thank you. So you see patients for many reasons at UNC in the Infectious Disease Clinic. Uh, we all know it affectionately as the ID clinic. And many patients you see there have HIV AIDS. And so that's what we'll be talking about today. Now, from a patient's perspective, when they come to the clinic for the first time and when you see them for the first time, what do you think they already know? How much are they aware of what's going on? And I bet they're patients who are completely in the know and patients for whom all of this is a blindside. Certainly. So we see a range of patients who are initiating their HIV care in our clinic. Sometimes they've been in the hospital and they find out that they're HIV positive in the hospital, so they're coming to our clinic after being very sick. Sometimes they have a routine HIV test at one of our wonderful community spots that offer HIV testing at a health department through their school, and all they know is that, that they have a positive test and they're very frightened. Sometimes we see folks who are transferring care to our clinic from another location. Maybe they've moved here, their insurance has changed, and so forth. So we really have a mixture of different perspectives. But what we always try to do is offer the same amount of information so that we can give everybody all the tools they need to be successful with treatment and engagement in care. Let's talk about the person for whom this is a blindside. First time getting, the, uh, getting a positive test, I can imagine there are issues of, uh, is this test correct? Uh, where did I get it from? How do you figure all of that out and help the, the patient go through that thinking process? Our clinic has been doing this for a long time, and we're lucky that we have a really wonderful group of patients who help us learn how to do our job in the best way possible. So one of the really important contributions to our clinic is something called a community advisory board. So we have a group of patients that tell us about their experiences to help us make things better for each successive group of patients. But what we try to do is have patients come to our clinic for a visit before they meet their doctor, nurse practitioner, or PA. So we have patients come, they meet our social workers, they talk about their lives, we talk about what they might need, we give them some general information about HIV, and we talk about how we can get them medicine. Right now, we recommend that everyone who's HIV positive be on medicine. That is critical. It ensures that they have a long and healthy life, and there's no reason to wait. So the long and healthy life. Tell me about that. There are wonderful examples of that that are well known to lots of people. What does long and healthy life mean? We expect right now that someone with HIV, if they remain on therapy, is going to live as long as they're meant to live perhaps even longer, because they're going to receive routine medical care, which not everyone in our state and in our country has access to. So why then do you think, with that wonderful news, why do you think people wait? Why don't they come and see you soon? 
immediately sometimes. It's frightening to go see a new doctor or healthcare provider, no matter what your medical problem is. And I think a lot of people are afraid to come to our clinic. They don't want to hear bad news. They're afraid to say that they don't have the money to pay for their care or their medicine. Maybe they're afraid that they'll see someone they know or that someone will see them entering the clinic. I'm glad you brought up that we affectionately call it the ID clinic because that's actually what all of our signs say. They say ID clinic. They don't say infectious diseases clinic. They don't say HIV clinic. And as you also mentioned, we treat a lot of other conditions besides HIV, so we like to tell our patients that their privacy is maintained. What happens if you can't pay? What happens if a patient says, oh, my goodness, I need these drugs, but I have no money? We are really lucky to have ways that we can make sure that everybody can get medication regardless of their ability to pay. So we have the ability to pay for medication for people who don't have enough money or don't have health insurance through federal and state-administered grants, assistance programs through pharmaceutical companies, UNC has a generous pharmacy assistance program that we utilize, and UNC itself has options to provide charity care, as we call it, or free care for those who don't have the ability to pay for their care. So what would you suggest that a patient brings with them to the first appointment with you, other than themselves and hopefully some companion who can be an advocate? That's such a great question. So that we can provide the care that we want to provide in our clinic, so that we can pay for the staff that all help to support patients to be successful in their care, we recommend that patients bring a pay stub or a tax return or anything that shows something about their financial situation. It's very helpful also if patients bring any medications, vitamins, even herbal supplements that they're taking so that we can look at all of those and help to shape the right treatment plan for the patient. We like to know everything about the person so that we can help them most effectively. Do you advise them to bring a, a companion, a friend, somebody else who can listen to all of your recommendations, or do you think they should come on their own? Everyone's different. One of the things that I tell my patients is that if we can get you on therapy, we're going to keep you healthy, and we're going to keep you looking good and looking strong so that nobody's going to ask if you're sick. It's always easier to go through this with someone else and with a supportive family member, friend, partner, but not everyone has that luxury. And we want to try to provide enough support for people that they don't have to worry about who they might bring to the appointment. Let's come back to this opportunity of of really learning from patients, your community advisory board. Mm -hmm. What have they taught you? What have they taught you about these initial visits? One of the things that they have helped us see is the way the spaces in our clinic look to the patient. I think everybody's had the experience of a a particularly frightening moment in their life, a stressful medical visit, a time when you received bad news, and you remember the strangest things. You notice details on the wall. You remember the shoes that the doctor was wearing. They help us to see the things that we don't see because we're there every day. They help us to see whether or not the posters on the wall have people who look like them. They help us to see whether we have reading material that's appropriate for all types of patients whether our chairs are comfortable for people of all different sizes, and whether we give patients a sense of control over their own diagnosis. We had a wonderful grand rounds this last week from a marketing professor at North Carolina State who shared the same kinds of observations. Dr. Stacy Wood pointed out that the signs on the door, the 
magazines that were in the magazine rack really shaped how patients felt about their visit. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure those are just wonderful insights. Walk me through what actually happens to a patient when they come to clinic. You've said that they see a social worker, they may see other members of your clinic. Just longitudinally walk me through really what happens. Tests, x-rays, other kinds of folks seeing them. So we have a couple of different types of visits for our patients. We have an urgent care or a walk-in clinic, which is for patients who have a specific concern, like a sore throat, a cough. What I'm going to describe is a typical scheduled visit. When people come to our clinic, if they're healthy, it may be once every six months. If we have them on therapy, they've been on therapy for a while, and there's nothing in particular bothering them. So a scheduled visit would take place twice a year. They'll be asked for their financial information. So our clinic has a huge number of staff, most of which are paid for through federal and state-level grants that are meant to provide comprehensive care for folks with HIV. People who don't have health insurance or don't have a lot of income and people who may have a steady income in health insurance are all welcome to use these services in our clinic, but we need to demonstrate what the range of patient income is in order to have everybody qualify to use these services if they need them and to make sure we can keep offering them. After people check in, they may be asked to fill out a survey on a tablet. This helps us get information about whether or not people are struggling with feelings of depression, anxiety, or if they may be having thoughts of hurting themselves, if they may be struggling with substance use. We found that this is a private way for our patients to express things that sometimes don't come up until the end of a visit or even are not addressed in the course of an entire visit. Patients also might be approached by someone we call a research screener. We're lucky to have a huge range of research studies offered at UNC, many of which represent cutting-edge therapies or very sophisticated considerations of therapies that we already use but want to continue to, to administer in better ways. We always offer our, ch our patients a chance to participate in research studies, but it's never an obligation, and refusing won't affect their, uh, their care in our clinic. The patient will see a nurse. That's a pretty typical interaction where they're weighed, they're asked about smoking, they're asked about what other medicines they're taking, and they're shown back to a room. Oftentimes, they'll see their provider soon after that to conduct a regular medical visit, but sometimes in the meantime, our pharmacist may come in to confirm that the patient would like to continue to receive their medications by mail. Sometimes a social worker will come in to check in. We have uh, an amazing array of folks who are in our clinic, and most of our patients get to know everyone's face pretty well. It's really a multidisciplinary approach. It is exactly a multidisciplinary approach. After the medical visit, if the patient has not had labs recently, their provider will explain the labs that are going to be obtained and show them where to go to get their blood drawn. Before that, we offer our patients a chance to have STD testing, or as we now call it, STI, or sexually transmitted infection. One of the neat things we're doing in our clinic is allowing patients an opportunity to test themselves. So instead of having to describe to your provider all the ways that you have sex, we let patients determine this for themselves. So. We have posters that show you how to do this and instructions for how to swab your throat if you have oral sex. 
swab your backside if you have anal sex, and pee in a cup for men and women. And a lot of our patients find this to be empowering. We recommend STI testing as part of routine health care, and our patients can take some of this into their own hands. We're going to talk later on in depth about treatment of HIV with one of your colleagues, Joe Iran. Uh, so discussing treatment is very important part of, of any appointment. What is the usual question that patients ask you about things that are concerned to them with the first uh, treatments? Are there, are there worries that they're going to react to the medicines? All of us who take medicines worry about side effects. Mm-hmm. What do they ask? Well, it's very hard to change public perception, and there are a lot of myths about HIV that float around. There are also a lot of you know, somewhat historic understandings of what HIV treatment means, and a lot of those things are no longer true. We have a large number of really well-tolerated treatment regimens for HIV. Any treatment regimen for HIV has to include more than one drug, but oftentimes these can be combined into one pill. A lot of our patients take one pill once a day, and we're commonly asked the question whether I have to take handfuls of pills several times a day, or whether they're going to make me so sick that I have to stay in bed, or I can't work, or my family will know that I'm taking them. And that's just not the case anymore. This institution has pioneered the concept that uh, uninfected partners of individuals who have HIV should also be treated, or at least that conversation needs to be had. So let's talk about the individual's partner. What advice do you tell the patient if their partner is not present, and what advice do you tell a partner if they are in the room? That is the number one piece of amazing news in the HIV world from 2017 and in the past couple of years. This is an incredibly exciting development in our field. There's an incredible campaign underway by a group called the Prevention Access Campaign, and their message is that undetectable equals untransmissible, the U equals U campaign. This is a campaign whose central message is that if a person is on HIV therapy, and if they are taking their medicine so that the virus is not seen in their blood, so when we draw a tube of blood, there's no virus that we can find, that person is not going to pass the virus on sexually to their partner who is HIV negative. And this is a message that has been proven time and time again by several large studies, the largest of which was led by my boss, Dr. Mike Cohen, here at UNC, that showed that people who are in this undetectable state And when you come to our clinic, we will talk a lot about this. Do not pass the virus on to other people. This means also that people don't need to worry about some of the things that are in the common perception of HIV. If you're not going to pass the virus on sexually, you're not going to pass the virus on by sharing a drinking glass, by sleeping on the same sheets, by sharing a toilet seat. The message that we try to get across to our patients is that People can live the lives that they want to live. People can have strong partnerships. People can have normal sexual relationships with people that they want to have sex with and not worry about the risk of transmission if they take their HIV medicine correctly. 
That means then that the partner does not need to be treated. That means that the partner does not need to be treated if they are in a monogamous relationship with our virally suppressed patient. Now, there are a lot of considerations that we recommend people talk to their doctors about. One of the things that we recommend is that people have routine testing for sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, and other infections that we can make sure both partners are healthy before we give them this, this advice. The other important thing to remember is that not everybody sticks with just one partner. In those situations, it's really important for people who are HIV negative to know their resources and to protect themselves with medications such as PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. One of the most important things for our patients to understand is that scientifically we can never say that there's zero risk, but we know that in these very large population studies, Thousands and thousands and thousands of people who were in partnerships with one positive person and one negative person did not transmit HIV to the negative person when the positive person was on effective therapy for HIV and was undetectable. And took their medicines. Took their medicines. Regularly and didn't miss doses. Yes. Yeah, that's, it's compliance with the treatment that uh, provides that layer of uh, certainty. Yes. One of the things that our clinic tries to pinpoint are the things that, that help people stay on therapy, and that's something that, that we try to support people in doing. We don't just give you a bottle of pills and tell you to take them and come back in six months. One of the points of that early visit is to really get to know you and figure out what, make, what makes it hard, what makes it easy for people to take these medicines. How do you deal with the emotional roller coaster that people can be on uh, the whole discovery, if this is the first time that they have even talked about HIV, the therapy, the concerns about their partner, reactions from other family members or members in the community, which really are not as well informed. How do you help the person stay reasonably sane? We try to make our clinic a safe space to ask any questions that people have and to voice any worries that they have. It is devastating to be told that you have any diagnosis, and this one is particularly fraught. This is something that people get through bad luck. This is a disease of stigma and shame and secrecy. And sometimes when people are given this news, they are not surprised, and, and sometimes they are shocked. And this range is something that our clinic has built a lot of resources to try to deal with and help patients through. We find that our patients oftentimes will feel so worried or so flustered on their first visit that they don't remember half of what they're told. So we've tried to structure access to our clinic to involve an initial meeting with our social workers, our nurses, and our financial counselors, and give us a chance to perhaps draw some blood labs, provide some information, and then when they come back to meet with their provider, Maybe they're absorbing some of this knowledge, and, and maybe they've had a chance to, to think of some questions that they might have. It's a long-term relationship, though, with the same group of people. Exactly. That helps with that, yeah. that uh, roller coaster. I think most patients, regardless of what kind of disease they have, or even if it's a well physical, only are able to retain a tiny proportion of what any provider 
actually tells them. Mm-hmm. That's amazing uh, as to our own inabilities to effectively transmit all the information that we want to be able to, to provide. It's really tricky in our particular clinic as well because a lot of people are understandably reluctant to take brochures or printed materials about HIV out of our clinic. So we try to provide general information that people can arm themselves with, or if they have access to the Internet, we can provide websites that we recommend that are sources of reliable information. What else do you tell patients in terms of just general health maintenance? What can they do and what shouldn't they do? We tell people, first and foremost, that they must quit smoking and using tobacco products. Obviously, we all know at this point in the medical field that that these are associated with all kinds of problems. But one of the things that we see with HIV is an accelerated rate of cancers that are sometimes downstream effects of exposure to tobacco products. That combination with being HIV positive is so dangerous that we really try to have our patients quit smoking. We try to support them through stopping use of other substances if they use drugs not prescribed to them, recreational drugs, if they drink alcohol heavily. And we also try to help them come up with a plan to be healthy in the longer term. If they're going to be receiving care in our clinic, that means that they have access to preventive health care and primary health care, and it's our job to make sure that they maintain a healthy weight, a healthy blood pressure, that they're getting good nutrition, that they're getting routine well-woman or well-man care, and that they get all of the preventive health benefits that all of us should be getting. And with respect to exercise, can they exercise as much as they want? Certainly. So there's no risk. In, in fact, what you're saying is stop smoking, get preventive care, enjoy a normal life, mm-hmm. and ask all the questions that you need to ask. Yes, yes. What do you tell people, either males or females, about about pregnancy? Uh, what do you tell a female who wants to get pregnant? What do you tell a female who is pregnant? And then what do you caution a male about? One of the common misconceptions that we found a lot of our patients share with us is that people with HIV can't get pregnant and have babies. And this is certainly not the case. One of the messages that we're trying to deliver to our patients is that you can plan when you have children. A lot of people feel like they need to to do it right away while they're still healthy, or that because they're HIV positive, they may never find somebody who wants to be with them and raise a child, so they need to seize the first opportunity they have to have a child. And we want to partner with our patients in, in planning for when they have kids. We want to make sure that they're healthy, that their viral load is undetectable, that they're able to manage other parts of their lives, and we try to give our patients the tools to do that. We have a a wonderful team that helps our pregnant HIV-positive women have healthy babies. Tell me about the maternal or the mom-to-fetus transmission of the virus. This is not something that we worry about in the context of a woman who's taking her HIV medicines and maintains an undetectable viral load in her blood. Because the maternal circulation is linked to the fetal circulation, of course, we feel that we can help a mom stay healthy and maintain uh, a zero risk of transmitting HIV to her baby if she remains in care with us. Is the risk zero for a baby born 
from an HEV-positive mother, or is the risk higher? The risk is zero if the mother is on medication and is virologically suppressed or undetectable, as we like to say. So how often do you recommend somebody getting tested to make sure that they're HIV or virally undetectable? It depends on the patient. During pregnancy, we tend to test more frequently just because so much is at stake. What does that mean, more frequently? So sometimes we'll test, depending on where a woman starts her pregnancy. So if she starts her pregnancy undetectable, we may check every two or three months. Sometimes if a woman is diagnosed with HIV and finds out she's pregnant at the same time, we may be checking very frequently to make sure that that we know when the, the viral load is undetectable. And does that make sure or at least increase the chances then that the baby will be born HIV negative? Having an undetectable viral load later in pregnancy is most important for avoiding HIV transmission to the baby. So we try to really focus on the very end of pregnancy, which coincides with when most women have to have very frequent visits to their obstetrician anyway to ensure that that a woman is undetectable around the time of delivery. So that's the last trimester, the last month? The last trimester. We see women throughout their pregnancy, though, to make sure that that the outcomes for the baby are as good as possible. What do you advise to men, then, who are concerned about this uh, whole whole issue of transmission? This is something that has to be worked out individually with a man and his partner if they desire a pregnancy. One of the things that we advise is a careful screening for health for both partners to make sure that we can say that this is a healthy situation to create a baby regardless of HIV. There are a lot of other things that we need to consider. In that context, we try to make sure that we can say that having sex for the purpose of getting a woman pregnant is a safe activity for both people. Claire, what do you like best about what you do? Gosh, I love I love seeing people in good health who are enjoying their lives and doing what they're meant to do. It gives me a huge amount of hope to see our patients going back to school, having grandchildren, getting organ transplantation, having meaningful relationships with other people, and feeling comfortable in their skin. So many people, when they first come to our clinic, are so dismayed and so weighed down by this diagnosis that it's a real joy to see people living the lives that I think they deserve to live and that we all think they deserve to live. It's just an astonishing statement to be able to make. Not all that long ago, one couldn't have even thought the thoughts that you've just uh, espoused. So that's just a remarkable rate of progress to be able to tell somebody you're going to do fine. And oh, by the way, I enjoy what I'm doing because you're going to live a normal life. That's remarkable. I agree. I love teaching patients about all of the hopeful things that, that they deserve. Another really fantastic thing about my job is being able to provide education to patients and to other people. We're so lucky at UNC that we have learners at all stages of learning with us at different times. And they teach us a lot as well. And it's very exciting to be able to spread the message that a diagnosis of HIV doesn't mean the end of somebody's life and that we can use people who have all different types of training to enrich the lives of our patients and give them a lot of hope. Thank you, uh, Claire Farrell, for joining us today. 
thank you so much for having me. Uh, Thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. Stay tuned for the next episode where we'll talk with Dr. Joe Huron about HIV treatment. If you enjoy this series, you can subscribe to it in the Chairs Corner on iTunes or like us on Facebook. Thanks so much.